Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Delight to be here today with Professor Judith Butler, who is Maxine Elliott Professor in the Department of Comparative Literature and the Program of Critical Theory at the University of California, Berkeley. She received her PhD in philosophy from Yale University in 1984. She's the author of many books, including her latest, The Force of Nonviolence, which was published by Verso Press in 2020. Thank you so much for taking time to talk. Yeah, I'm pleased to be here. Thank you. So to jump right in here, how, how has your Jewish identity impacted your approach to ethics and morality in your work in general? Okay, it's an excellent question. Um, when I was very young, I, um, I took courses at my synagogue. It was part of the general Jewish education program, but I always signed up for the ethics class because um, I really enjoyed those debates and I found them existentially pertinent and um, and of course, that was the 1960s and um, early 70s, I suppose. And, uh, and I was um, part of a post-war generation that was trying to make sense of how people made choices during the Second World War, whether, they, um, whether Jews um, fled or hid or how they could be part of resistance or how they could um, offer support for one another under conditions that were as we know, utterly atrocious. Um, and so I, um, I read a great deal and it, was, it, it actually produced for me an interest in, in philosophy. Uh, I started to read Spinoza, I read, I read Maimonides and, um, and I, I developed a way of thinking about the world through, um, through my Jewish education and the philosophy texts that emerged from that. And I think that continues to be true today. I've recently published on Martin Buber. And um, as you know, Buber had an idea that, um, we, our, that we're not just these bounded individuals separate from one another, but that we live um, in, a, in a living relationship with one another. Um, and, and what does that mean to be in a living relationship with another? Uh, it means that my life is bound up with another's life and what happens to that other's life affects me because I am connected with them through this, this living relation. Yeah, it seems that in our, in our current moment that seems to be more understood than ever before, perhaps. <laughs> yes, I think it's true. We, we share conditions of life. We share the breath. Uh, we share the air. We share, we share the surfaces of the world, right? They connect us uh, for better and for worse. So as an authority in, in gender theory, how do you envision the field in another 10 years? Do you think it'll be significantly different from now? You know, the, the field goes in so many different directions. I mean, I think that, um, as you know, there's, 
there's a vibrant trans community. There's a vibrant community of people who are choosing other language with which to describe themselves, including um, non-binary and, and others. And this, this has been uh, a time of both great experimentation, but also a time in which we've learned a lot about how people have suffered by being slotted into the wrong categories. And, um, and, and, and we've had to think um, about what their rights are and what, what their well-being consists in. Um, it's, it's not just a luxury to play with gender. It is, um, it is a, a lived necessity to, uh, to find a way in one's body and in language uh, to live and breathe and to be well in the world. Um, but also, I think the feminist movement has strengthened. It takes very different forms across, uh, across the world, but it's part of gender studies and always has been. Uh, the struggle against violence against women, which is unfortunately heightened under the coronavirus conditions, um, the study for uh, the, the, the struggle for, uh, for economic and social equality continues, uh, and, um, and, a, and a struggle for freedom, um, a, str a struggle to be able to live in the world without fear and with, um, with the possibility of, of, of moving through the world um, uh, uh, in, in a way that with, without, without being assaulted or without fearing um, uh, harassment of some kind. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of lived necessity, many fairly or unfairly think of, of the field of philosophy as dealing with abstractions irrelevant to one's, uh, to one's life. How, how do you think that the philosophical field can be more relevant to American lives today? Well, I don't know. Every taxi driver I've ever had is a philosopher, <laughs> right? Because they're really basic questions like, how do I live? Uh, what do I do? What gives me meaning? What gives us meaning? Am I connected to others? If so, how? What do I owe others? What do they owe me? Uh, and I think that those are they're basic questions of how to become oriented in the world, but they're also ethical questions of what is the what is the good life or what is the best way to live, and you know I think people are asking that question all the time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so just the last question for you today: um, how, how has the coronavirus and this just current crisis we're immersed in, which we've started to touch on, changed or enhanced or altered any of your thinking or or, or theories? or any reflections you have just on this moment of quarantine and how, how many lives are being affected, billions of lives around the, around the, around the world. Yeah, well, I have several thoughts about that. Um, maybe I'll, I'll start with a more local one and then move towards the more global. Um, the local one is, uh, is, is this. I have a, a son who lives in the next town and, um, he's been more in the world than I am. I am uh, uh, practicing isolation. Um, and uh, can I see my son? <laughs> I see him at a distance. He comes in the backyard and I, but I cannot hug my son. Now, the reason I cannot hug my son, which is very rough for me. I mean, I presume it's rough for him too. Okay, we'll just <laughs> assume it's a reciprocal difficulty. Um, but the reason, it's not just that he will inf infect me, maybe I infect him, we don't know. We're unknowing about who is affecting who, whom, 
<laughs> and, 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 and who is the carrier and who is not the carrier. So we're living in a kind of darkness. We're living in a kind of opacity. We don't know who's caring and who's not, who's communicating, who's not. And as such, there has to be a kind of special care. It is very odd to experience self-isolation as care. Care is usually giving, touching, providing, sheltering. But here I am sheltering myself. That doesn't exactly feel like care, but it is care. Because I do not know whether I can hurt another. Therefore, I must stay here. Yeah. Um, but also, let us... Um, it, what it brings, it makes me think very clearly about those who do not have shelter. You cannot shelter in place if you do not have a shelter, right? You cannot, you cannot even um, expect medical care should you develop the illness and not be able to breathe because the medical facilities have not been properly funded, have not been properly staffed, and they don't have the proper supplies. And the reason for that is in part that this country has not put public health as a priority, as a political priority. We assume people make provisions for themselves through private means, through their place of business. But what, are those, what about those who do not have a place of business or whose place of business does not provide health care? Yeah. Um, we, in effect, our privatized system abandons populations who are not able to enter that system or profit from its benefits. I don't think that healthcare should be a benefit. I think it should be a basic human right. It should be some, a public good that we are all committed to providing. So we're seeing the way that this virus affects people differentially according to wealth. And of course, in the global arena, we see that Ecuador cannot even house its, cannot shelter its dead bodies. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and Italy has, has had, to, had to construct morgues because we are not uh, a, a world that cares about global equality. But I think global equality in healthcare and understanding healthcare as a global good, a good for all publics, yeah. is the most important lesson we can learn and that means that we are connected, not just to those who are closest to us, my Isaac, for instance, in Oakland, but, <laughs> but also to the Ecuadorian people, even though I don't speak their language very well, yeah. right? And yeah, those are living relations. You mentioned wealth, and, and uh, you know, we also see race. Uh, in, I read in Chicago, some 70 to 80% of the deaths so far have been people of color. You yes. mentioned gender um, and being trapped with one's abuser, uh, as one example. Um, just horrific. Um, and then you mentioned darkness. And as you know, the ninth plague, the ninth plague is the plague of darkness. And yes. it says over there that people couldn't move from their spot and they couldn't see one another. One of my concerns is the weakening or the diminishing of the capacity of empathy. When we can't see each other, can we still feel for each other? I think that is a really important question. Uh, perhaps we cannot see each other, but we have other senses and we can sense each other without sight. And people who are unsighted know that. Yeah. And I believe also that there are forms of empathy that can be developed through the internet, even though they are perhaps not as refined as I would like. But that is the big ethical challenge for us, no? To care for the other we do not know, we do not see, uh, whose name we may not know, whose language we may not speak. We are still connected with them. That, that is a global, that is a global, obligation at this time. And it's hard to do 
Just because we're in the dark does not mean we cannot act ethically. Right. You know, just my last reflection on something you said before we, we end here. I, I, I'm really moved by how you talked about care and that care is not some objective prescription. Care continues to evolve in different moments. And what care means in this moment is something fundamentally different. Yes, odd. Yeah. Counterintuitive. Professor Butler, wishing you continued uh, health and security and, and success in all of your endeavors. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you.